Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 176, recorded Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons podcast, why business travel will come back, and learning the history of airports. Coming to you again from the Travel Commons studios as Chicago and the state of Illinois completely reopened for business. No more capacity limits, no more social distanced seating, just in time for the summer music festival season. So things like Lollapalooza, Pitchfork, no capacity limits, but you do have to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to stand shoulder to shoulder with, say, 100,000 other music fans at Lollapalooza. Irene and I did that one year, Lala, you know, kind of, okay, check, don't need to do that again. And also, I think I aged out of that demographic, like back in the 1990s. Since the last episode, though, I've first flew down to Miami on business and then over to New York City for a long weekend personal travel. Miami is always an interesting business destination. It's got its own unique, I don't know, vibe. It really starts at the airport, officially bilingual, Spanish and English, in that order. But it seems half the time when they make PA announcements, they just skip the English version like, yeah, it's not necessarily needed. The client's office was in the Wynwood Art District. It's my first time in this neighborhood, and it's, I don't know, it's kind of got a typical newly gentrified vibe. Lots of first-generation food places, you know, an upscale donut shop, a poke lunch joint, a couple of microbrewery tap rooms, which actually is always key for me. What wasn't typical was the amount of wall art, not graffiti as much as very cool murals and street art, in the neighborhood kind of a bright, colorful vibe, while, I don't know, probably painting over some otherwise kind of dire-looking buildings. I stayed a few miles south uh, in the Marriott on Biscayne Bay, where, I don't know, some combination of my status and patience with a front desk trainee trying to solo on the property management system for the first time earned me a top-floor bayside room looking out over the Port of Miami's cruise terminal, They had four big cruise ships tied up, all waiting for the CDC to drop their cruising ban. One morning, before the humidity got above 80%, I decided to skip Uber and ride a Lyft scooter up to the art district. And I've talked in past episodes how much I like riding scooters. I've ridden scooters in Chicago, Phoenix, D.C., everywhere I can find them. But last year, I have to tell you, I didn't ride them, even though they were all around Chicago. There's a fun sort of frivolous vibe about riding a scooter. I don't know about you, but 2020 was anything but fun or frivolous. And I I don't know, I just didn't much feel like riding them. But on this morning in Miami, with just that touch of humidity in the air and not much traffic on the streets, having a little fun riding a scooter to the office felt once more like the right thing to do. So following up, talking in the last episode about needing to rebuild atrophied travel muscles after this long lockdown layoff generated a couple of comments. Chris Christensen of the Amateur Traveler podcast dropped me a note saying, I can relate. We just got back from our first 
post-vaccine trip to the Galapagos. First time on a plane since 2019. I mean, the first trip and you go to the Galapagos? No warm-up trips? God, I hope you didn't sprain any of those travel muscles. And Jim McDonough's first trip back wasn't a simple one either. He wrote on the Travel Commons Facebook page, Last month, we made our first trip since January 2020 to Kodiak, Alaska, of all places. Attending the decommissioning of a ship, I helped the Coast Guard put into commission in 1971. San Diego to Alaska is a long way. Alaska Airlines is really nice, but I noticed my travel skills had atrophied. Approaching TSA, I realized that the red mesh bag I usually have for holding metal objects wasn't with me. And then I sat for a while at the gate in Anchorage until remembering that the Admirals Club members can use Alaska's lounge. I'm I'm ready to go again, but probably not all the way up to Kodiak. Well, I'll tell you, kudos to both of you guys, Chris and Jim, for jumping straight into, it's really jumping straight into the deep end on travel with trips to Kodiak and the Galapagos. But everybody's got to be careful. Weak travel muscles can make you vulnerable. A few days ago, I retweeted a thread about a phishing attack, a very well-formatted, make sure your TSA pre-check doesn't expire, click here sort of email with a link that, as you can imagine, didn't take you to TSA.gov. Though Aaron Wooden did tweet back the question, if you click on the link, does it confiscate your water? (laughs) You know, it's a well-timed fish, and so it's probably going to get some scores, especially as more business travelers are gearing to get back out on the road. And in the last episode, I talked about Irene and Claire losing track of their global entry expiration dates. Claire's expired, and Irene ended up hitting the renew button on the last day. Now, you might think global entry? I mean, big deal. Who's traveling internationally right now? But remember, for 100 bucks for five years, Global Entry gives you the express lane through immigration plus TSA pre-check versus the 85 bucks for pre-check alone. Hence, I always tell people just to, like, splurge. Go blow the extra 15 bucks for Global Entry. So anyhow, Irene and Claire fill out their online renewal form. They pay the 100 bucks, which Irene actually immediately got back because she used my Amex Platinum card. And then... Nothing. Didn't hear anything back, like silence, crickets, which is odd because when I renewed my global entry, I had to go to O'Hare for an interview and an updated photo. But for them, nothing. Our flight to New York, to LaGuardia is coming up. The night before we leave, Irene gets an email, now no link, mind you, just a message, that said, congrats, your global entry has been renewed. Yay! You know, she's happy. Except that then when she went to check in to Southwest later that night, there's no little blue pre-check checkmark on her boarding pass. Claire got her congrats email the next day, but again, no check on the boarding pass. Ugh, you know, the prior week when I was in Miami the non-pre-check lines tailed back sort of the length of the terminal. But as it turned out, it wasn't a huge hassle. We left a little earlier for Midway, no horror lines. Three days later, when they checked in for our flight back home from LaGuardia back home, they both got the blue check on their boarding pass. So spinning my IT propeller a little bit, it would seem that the airlines aren't pinging that pre-check database more than, I don't know, once every couple of days. Now, this trip was the first time since 
January 2019 that I'd flown into LaGuardia. You know, that's 28, almost 28 months, so about two and a third years. When I did that math, when I looked that up, it shocked me. And I had to go back and kind of check my calendars and my math again because it seemed like I was always flying to and from New York. But it's right. I mean, second shock, though, for me, better shock, was flying into the newly rebuilt Terminal B. Bright, airy, spacious, clean. Everything that the old Terminal B I flew into two-plus years ago was not. You know, back then it was that low-ceilinged rat maze that seven years ago then-Vice President Joe Biden says would like a third-world airport, which I actually think was less of an insult to LaGuardia and more of an insult to many developing countries' airports. Walking down that old concourse to catch an American or United flight, it was not unusual to have to dodge a big plastic garbage can placed right in the middle of the concourse. And it had a hose coming down from the ceiling, actually from the bottom of a makeshift funnel made out of plastic tarp that was hanging from some ceiling tiles that was collecting rainwater from a roof leak. And you know what? I mean, and the funny thing was, is you just walk right past it like it was perfectly normal. No one would ever kind of look at it and go, what the hell is this? Because you'd seen it once a month. It was a normal event. But now... LaGuardia Terminal 2, it's phenomenal. Honestly, they have done a great job. I used to say that San Francisco's new Terminal 2 was my favorite terminal, where American and then back then Virgin America flew out of, but now it's absolutely LaGuardia's Terminal B. Now, there's still some construction going on, and getting a cab to the city is still a hassle, and unfortunately, it's a necessary one because there's still no subway link. But once you're inside Terminal B, it's great. Give yourself a little time to see the water fountain light show it actually it was it was phenomenal and you know what having a little downtime in terminal b is no longer the purgatory that it used to be because now there are places that you can actually sit down and eat and grab a beer no more kind of standing around having to juggle your bag with an auntie ann's pretzel i rarely have anything good to say about the port authority but i tell you they've done a pretty damn good job here And the TSA, another government agency that I don't often have good things to say about, does a very good job of publishing the daily volumes of air passengers passing through their security checkpoints. And just scanning that page on their website, you can see the growth kicking up in the February-March time frame. Though if you've flown any time over the past couple of months, you probably don't need to look at those numbers. You've already felt fuller planes and longer checkpoint lines. The Friday of Memorial Day weekend, the end of May, checkpoint volume was up 599% over the same Friday last year. And then this past Friday, June 11th, checkpoint volume broke 2 million for the first time since the March lockdowns. Now, these numbers are still sort of 25 to 30% below 2019's numbers, but that gap is closing. And then the keynote from Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference gave me actually something else good to say about the TSA. Working with Apple to let you use a digital version of your driver's license at the security checkpoints. Now, I've already noticed that at a few airports, you no longer have to show your boarding pass. You you give the TSA guy your driver's license, they just pop it into a scanning machine, it sucks it in and spits it out, and then you drop your mask to show your full face and then you're on your way. No more fumbling to pull up your boarding pass and scanning it. But now 
No more fumbling for my wallet if I can pull up my license on my phone would be just smoking. Actually, better than my driver's license would be if the TSA would let me put my global entry card on my iPhone because that global entry card is a real ID card while my Illinois driver's license still is not. So it could actually save me an extra trip to the DMV if and when the TSA decides to get serious about real ID again, which I hope is never. Continuing on what is now a three-episode arc on Uber and Lyft service, the long wait times, the huge price surges, heading out for my flight down to Miami, the 17-mile Monday morning Uber ride to O'Hare at $74 with a two-time surge cost almost as much as the 1,100-mile flight on American down to Miami Airport, which was $100 one way. Look, there's no rational way to explain this, so I'll leave it here as a meditation exercise for microeconomic pricing theorists and then just move on, except because I just, I guess I just can't leave it here, to note that I had no problem with Uber or Lyft in Miami. And except for that one sort of joyful morning ride on the scooter, the South Florida heat and humidity had me lighting up the Uber app multiple times a day. So I'm guessing, you know, maybe here in Chicago, those Uber carjackings they had a few months back are still having some residual impact on their driver recruitment efforts. And hey, if you've got a travel story, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account at Travel Commons, or post your comments on the website at travelcommons.com. first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is why business travel will come back. So last Friday, the first day of Chicago's full reopening, and the same day the TSA's checkpoint volume broke the 2 million passenger mark for the first time post-lockdown, a business colleague and I met for some happy hour beers and oysters in a bar in Wrigleyville. We were sitting at a second floor table against an open window, looking out over Wrigley Field as fans poured out of the Clark and Addison main gate and into the nearby bars to celebrate the Cubs' victory over the St. Louis Cardinals in what was the first full-capacity game since September 2019. My colleague, Mike, he's in consulting, too, and he'd been talking about how he's itching to get back out on the road to see his clients and how he's working to convince the firm's management to lift or at least bend their travel plans so he can see the clients again, at least the ones who want to start meeting people face-to-face again. Zoom and Teams calls are okay. They can suffice for some things, but there are so many things you miss when you're not there in person. Now, in a out-of-left-field sort of way, if you'll forgive that really stretched metaphor, the masses of Cub fans blocking the traffic on Addison Street kind of helped prove Mike's point. Official attendance for that Cubs game on Friday was 35,112. Not quite a sellout, but having butts in 84% of the seats in Wrigley for a 1.20 p.m. Friday game, that's not bad. 
But similar to the why travel to a meeting when you can video conference question, you know, you could say why go to a baseball game in person when you can watch it on TV where it's covered not by just some crappy laptop camera, but you know, five to eight high-definition cameras with clean lenses that are run by professionals. I know it's a stupid strumming question that we all know the answer to. It's not just the game, it's the whole experience. But it's not an either-or. Many times watching the game on TV is fine and more convenient. But sometimes you got to get off the couch and go see the game live, in person, with a bunch of friends. You know, a couple of recent interactions over the past couple of weeks have been driven this home to me. I've had multiple video calls with a programmer over the past month, probably three to four hours worth, going through some system re-architecting. And after all that, I thought I had it pretty much down. Now the guy started coming into the office. He said working from home for 14 months was like being under house arrest. So I pulled him into a conference room and we just started sketching stuff on a whiteboard. We stood there shoulder to shoulder, passed the blue marker back and forth, and in 20 minutes realized that there were three key facts about the existing systems that never came across in those hours of video calls and really completely changed the new architecture. But we were able to do that in person in 20 minutes. And actually, afterwards, the guy said to me, hey, that was fun. Let's do more of that. A reaction I've never heard about a video conference ever. And at the same time, I had the exact opposite experience, trying to explain a concept on a week's worth of video calls that I know we could have handled in an hour if we could have been in the same room together. But we can't because the other guy's overseas and can't get through the U.S. travel lockdown. So we trudged through the calls and the frustration. Which pretty much goes back to my colleague Mike's point, the point he was trying to make over honking buses and shouts of Go Cubs Go. Yeah, I can have a meeting on Zoom, but I can't have the pre-meeting, how are things going chats while we're walking into the room, or the post-meeting, can I ask you what you really meant in there, sidebar, or pick up the nonverbal glances people will shoot at each other. The meeting's important, but so is the choreography that surrounds the meeting, maybe even more so. And that's what I can't get now. That, and I've worked with a lot of these clients for 10, 15 years, so they're friends too. And I miss that too. Airlines have recently said that business travel is still down 70% from pre-lockdown levels, but almost all of their top corporate accounts are telling them that they plan to restart travel later this year. But first, they got to figure out how to get their people out of their sweats and back into the office. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is learning the history of airports. Back at the beginning of the year, back at episodes 172, 173, I talked about a guy who lived on the secure side of O'Hare from October 2020 till January 2021 because he was too afraid to fly. Interesting, because mind you, he did fly into O'Hare. In researching this, what turned out to be not a unique situation, I came across an article written by Professor Janet Bednarik, professor of history at University of Dayton. Her area of focus is the history of airports in the U.S., which I thought would be a perfect topic for the Travel Commons podcast. I'm not sure there's a more perfect topic. So I sent her a Zoom invite, as one does these days, and we had a great conversation about the history of airports. Janet, history of airports. 
Mm-hmm. How, how did you get into that? Because <laughs> as a professor of history, you think, okay, what am I going to focus on? American Revolution, Civil War, yeah. airports. Okay, perfect. I originally trained as an urban historian, focusing on city planning. But my first paid job was as an historian with the United States Air Force. And so I had to kind of pick up aviation history, especially military aviation history. Then in uh, 1992, my husband and I were moving to the Dayton area. My husband was an Air Force officer. And this job came up at the University of Dayton. If somebody could teach urban and aviation history, I began to think, well, where do those two things intersect? They intersected the airport. And it was clear to me that not a lot of people had written about airports. And so I thought, well, wide open field. Here we go. When they first talked about building airports, the, the planners talked a lot about how do we integrate them within the city? They were literally talking about the downtowns. And so if you go back to the 1920s, for example, you will see these fantastical schemes for building airports on top of bridges, on top of a a ring of skyscrapers. Even in the 1930s, Norman Belgetti's came up with an idea of an airport that was floating out in New York Harbor on an island. Boris Johnson was trying to do that for uh, London, you know, when he was the mayor there. (laughs) I mean, on one case, you want to be as close in as possible, but there's the noise, there's the danger. The other side of it is when airports actually started being built in the 1920s and 1930s, and it's being built largely by local interests, and they're interested in the cost. And the further you go out from the center, the lower the land costs are. But they would often try to find it on transportation lines that were already there. The Dayton Airport, for example, is not far from an intersection between what was the National Road, Route 40, and the Dixie Highway. But the airport's not far from there, and businessmen from Dayton knew to get there because there was a trap shooting club that operated literally right at the edge of the airport uh, until a couple decades ago. So they knew how to get there and where it was. That's interesting. I've got a gun range on a flight path and stuff coming in. Okay, that's that's interesting. The Atlanta airport was where uh, several uh, places were where racetracks had been. So you could drive there because obviously you had to drive there to race your cars around. So it was areas where, where there was already some accessibility but the land was cheap. So Atlanta and I think Minneapolis, St. Paul also, there was a racetrack there originally. So I guess if we pivot, what do we think about looking forward out in the future? Well, in the United States anyway, um, Mm -hmm. building new ones are still extraordinarily difficult and finding the places for them would be very, very difficult because let's think Denver. They went out and they bought 50 square miles out in the middle of nowhere Noise complaints went up <laughs> after GIA opened up. So you got to wonder, I remember taking some of the first flights there and you went over nothing other yeah. than a herd yeah. of buffalo. So it's yeah. like, were the buffalo complaining? or? <laughs> but it, it was people who had moved out to that area yeah. expecting peace and quiet. And now airplanes were coming in there. There's literally nowhere you could build an airport that there isn't going to be some complaints about it. In that way, it probably explains the multi-billion dollar upgrade to LaGuardia and yes. and what they're going to start O'Hare. And then right. they did down in Atlanta with the runway extension. Expanding and improving the ones that we have, I think, is what, what's going to happen into the future. I mean, well, if you, if you think about it, in the United States, we built very few since the 1950s. Most airports 
that uh, commercial airports that exist in the United States were in place in one way or the other, uh, either as a private field or a military field or mm -hmm. something by World War II. Yeah, that makes sense. Completely greenfield airports are relatively rare after World War II. I thought that LaGuardia in that new terminal had gotten security right. And when you looked at the whole setup, that was really nice. After 9-11, they all had to wedge it in there. A lot of what airports have done since then has been try to redesign themselves so that the security becomes a more convenient and seamless experience there. Because I mean, right after 9-11, I mean, that, that was all improvised. Yes. And it was wherever you could put it. And no one knew how long those security protocols were going to last. So who wants to spend millions of dollars redesigning? But now that it's fairly clear that, yeah, this, these security protocols are going to be forever. Now, within the last five or 10 years, I would say airports have begun to spend the real money to redesign so that the security fits. Become, it becomes integral as opposed to a bolt-on. I, th I think people are saying to themselves, look, it's been 20 years. Yeah. It's about time it stops being an afterthought. And it's, let's face it, it's an integral part of the experience. Yeah, let, let's start applying some lessons learned here. Yeah, because <laughs> there are a lot of them. Thanks to Dr. Janet Bednarik, professor of history at the University of Dayton. Uh, Janet, thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us on the Travel Commons podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 176. I hope you all enjoy the episode and hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to us on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of those sites? Or better yet, tell someone about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really... Quite honestly, nowadays, it's the only way to grow a podcast. And if you're not yet subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, subscribe links at the bottom, and in the middle, a big red subscribe button. Also, across the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Text or audio file, comment, C-O-M-M-E. ENTS at travelcommons.com or to M. Peacock on Twitter, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments. I really appreciate it. So as we all get moving and as we all start to maybe become part of the 2 million people passing through the TSA checkpoints over the next couple of months, travel safe, take care. Thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Thank you.